this Wednesday night crowd in the whole program. Uh, don't have any point of reference before November, but after I came uh, for a few weeks, we would average like 90, maybe 100 people on a Wednesday night. 35 of them would be young people. Well, tonight, by the time everybody got in, there are close to 80 of us in here, and there are 75 or maybe more than that by now, 80 or 85 young people across the alley in that Wednesday thing. And on a bad night like this, we've got about 160 people around here on a Wednesday night. And uh, on, a, on some of the nights when the weather has been good, uh, it's been double what it used to be. And I'm just real pleased to see that coming around, people involved in what's going on, stopping to break the week uh, with a little Christian fellowship and a feast at the Word and some Christian training. Now, Wednesday, Sunday night, we were in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, which I dealt with under the topic of a progression in grace. And uh, we looked at verses 1 and 2, where Paul talks about uh, if someone is caught in a fault, those who are spiritual are to do everything that they can to restore that one with a spirit of gentleness, remembering that it could happen to you too. And uh, I call that mutual concern as a basic first level of Christian growth. Can anyone tell me the key word I said in verses 1 and 2? The reality, the thing we deal with day by day in this matter of mutual concern. Anybody? Forgiveness. Thank you. All right, then in verse 3, Paul says, If a man thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And I said that the next point of Christian growth was an awareness of the true nature of self. What was the key word there? Pride. All right. Verse 4, Paul talks about uh, learning to take care of our own lives. He said, let someone uh, evaluate his own self, and then he'll have cause for rejoicing because of what God is doing in his life and not because of those around him. And the key word here was discipline. I can't see whose mouth's moving, but somebody was listening. Praise the Lord. All right. Verse 5. He says, let every man bear his own burden. And he's come from the point where we uh, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ to the point where every one of us who are growing Christians is supposed to bear our own burden, our own load. And what did we call that? Consistency. Who is that, by the way? No. Okay, thank you. No, I don't see her. She may be in the nursery or something. Uh, and then verse 6, Paul says, Let him who is taught share all good things with him who teaches. And uh, what did I say about this? That it was love which... Love which produces generosity. You say, why the recap? Well, uh, out of an unusually good Sunday night crowd, there were at least two people that benefited from it. And that kind of keeps my 
head where it ought to be, you know. It's not really time for anybody to get all impressed with himself. But besides that, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5 tonight, verses 11 to 14, where the writer to the Hebrew Christians uh, deals with essentially the same subject matter, the matter of Christian growth that Paul dealt with in the whole book of Ephesians and in Galatians chapter 6, which we talked about uh, Sunday night. Ephesians 5, 11 to 14. Now, he's talking previous to this about Melchizedek, and uh, that's a whole other thing, Melchizedek. There are a lot of people, the pastor included, who believe that Melchizedek was one of those things we call theophanies, appearances of God, that it was a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus Christ. And Paul seems to feel that way. Rather, the writer to the Hebrew Christians seems to feel the same way. And he's getting into some rather deep water, and he just comes to a point where he says, okay, time out. Let's, you know, call off this discussion. And then he begins right here in verses 11 to 14 saying, concerning him, that is Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles or the acts or the words of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature who because of use or practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The Christian life is totally the work of the Holy Spirit. It is by the free gift of grace that you and I are anything at all, of any worth, of any value, of any use to God or to anybody else. However, it is clearly demonstrated in the Bible that we have varying capacities to trust God and to let Him work through us. Now this is more than a matter of semantics because I am not saying that a Christian in his own power and determination exercises himself to grow strong, to do God a favor or to serve God. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the writer to Hebrews says. What I am saying rather is that it is not our, gro our growth that honors God in our lives, but as our capacity to surrender control of our lives to God increases, He is able more and more to honor Himself through us. It's more than a fine distinction or a difference of words. It is a very real difference. It is the difference between me doing something for God and the great God himself honoring himself as he uses me like a vessel or like a hand uses a glove. It is not our growth that honors God, but as our capacity to surrender increases, God is able to have fuller control of our lives and honor himself 
through us. Notice the things the Scripture says about Christian growth. Paul says over and again, we grow in grace. Now you see, there's growth, but there's grace. Grace is something that God does that we don't have any part in. Remember, grace is God's free gift given to us even though we don't deserve it. Paul says over and again, we grow in grace. Paul says likewise, as does John, we grow in Christ. Paul says we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say knowledge about him. He's not talking about purely an intellectual growth. But we grow in our possession of his knowledge as he reveals himself to us more and more. So you see what the scriptures really say about growth is that you and I grow in our willingness and our ability to turn loose of our lives and let God have control day by day. There's a very great difference. For the Christian who tries to do his best, there is only frustration. For the Christian who is determined if it kills him to honor God and be everything that God wants him to do, it will kill him. For he cannot do it. But what we can do is day by day as God reveals himself to us more fully, release more and more of our will and the control of our lives to him and let him take over. It is like two people in the seat of a car. One of them is going to drive. And I don't know if you've ever tried it, like with a small child or, or with a teenager you were trying to teach to drive or with somebody uh, who tried to learn to drive late in life, but two people handling the wheel doesn't work. And it is more disastrous than that when we try to balance the impossible between doing what we think is right and letting God have control of our lives. You see, we've got all the language, folks, but when we say, I'm going to let God have control of our life, what most of us mean is, I'm going to do my best to do what I think is absolutely right. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter how determined we are. The Scriptures guarantee us, Isaiah 55, 6 to 13, that whole passage, the Scriptures guarantee us that there is as much difference between we, the way we think, even at our best, and the way God thinks as there is between the extremities of the sky and the ground upon which we walk. So when we say, and when the Scriptures say, surrender, commitment, let Jesus take over. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That is not figurative language. It means exactly what it says. It is an objective reality. Folks, the most ungodly and unholy and devastating, harmful things that have ever happened in the history of the world have been done by people who were doing their best to do the right thing. The bloodiest wars on record were fought by people who did it in the name of God. About seven, 
between seven and nine hundred years ago for a period of a couple of centuries, Christians from England and Europe tried to perform genocide on the Arabic peoples in the name of God to reclaim what they called the Holy Land. And so it is not what we can do for God that matters, but rather what honors God is that as we day by day have new revelation and a new fellowship with Him, we surrender a little more fully control of our lives and literally, no figurative language, literally let Him do His thing through us. In Hebrews 5, the passage we have looked at is an illustration of this matter of a growing capacity to let God take over. It is illustrated in the book of Ephesians, as I mentioned, and the finest little short work on Ephesians that's ever been done, I think, is a book by the great Chinese Christian, Watchman Nee, entitled Sit, Walk, Stand where he deals with the same subject matter that these three verses deal with, these four verses. The matter of sitting, that is, unable to stand or to walk and being fed. The matter then of walking around on shaky legs and then growing in capacity to trust God so that we're able to stand firm by ourselves against the enemy. Ephesians, Galatians chapter 6 in this passage all correlate and would be a very beneficial Bible study to a Christian to see how these three passages of Scripture relate. But let us examine quickly uh, this passage, Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. In verses 11 through 13, in these three verses, the matter of the baby Christian, the being fed by others stage is dealt with. So number one, in the growth of a witness, by the way, that's what I'm calling this tonight, the growth of a witness. Number one, being fed by others. Hebrews 5, 11 to 13. During this stage of development, we are dependent on other Christians for all that we receive by way of spiritual training and nurture. During this stage, too much emphasis is placed on the emotional side of life. Emotions are valid. The total man cannot be stirred without the emotions being stirred. But during this stage, too much emphasis is placed on the emotions. During this stage, a Christian is unstable, easily lifted up to the heights, but equally as easy, the props are knocked out from under him, and one day on the top, the next day, he is on the bottom. During this stage, the emphasis is wrong, for the emphasis is on people. If things are right at home, if things are good on the job or at school, if our friends, if things are right there, if things are good in our own eyes as we evaluate it at church, then everything's fine. But if people in any of those categories, at work or school or church or home, don't do what we think or, or they get cross up with us or we get crossways with them or there is conflict, then that person or people who let us down are able to just devastate us spiritually because the emphasis is all wrong. It's on people. It ought never to be that way. 
And one of the important things in Christian growth is to come to the point where we are not disillusioned, thrown, devastated, almost destroyed by what people do. You see, it's always going to be that way. You don't know anybody that won't let you down. Nobody but Jesus. During this stage, we're always taking, but we don't really have anything of value to give in return. Christian growth does not follow the calendar. For often it happens that a Christian, through lack of training, or through an unwillingness to surrender, through carnality, or whatever the avenue of immaturity might be, perpetuates in the baby stage and does not go forward. Notice in verse 12, the writer to the Hebrew Christian says, Now, at this time right now, he says, you ought to be teachers. That's a position of respect, able to help other people and bring them along. He said, but you are so far behind that you need somebody to go back to the beginning and teach you, and literally in the Greek, this says the ABCs of the principles of God. So it doesn't follow the calendar then. There's no comfort to be taking, taken in age. One Christian may grow perpetually from childhood. Another may sit still having not dealt with, with the sin in his life, the shortcomings as we talked about in Galatians chapter 6 for an indefinite period of time. So the growth of the witness, the first stage that the writer mentions here is that of being fed by others. And then in the first part of verse 14, he talks about feeding yourself. But solid food is for the mature, he says. Now, by the time that a child is able to eat solid food that has not been strained, pre-done, pre-fixed, mixed, tore up, chopped, blended, or something, by the time they get to where they can handle real food like the rest of us eat, they are able to feed it to themselves and to their ears, and their hair, and the floor, and the wall, and everybody around them. But they are able, sloppy, and ineffective, though their methodology may be, they are capable of feeding themselves. Now, I touched on this lightly Sunday night, but the Scriptures hammer on it over and again. Now, it is true that the people who teach you Sunday school, training union, uh, a Bible study, a book study, the pastor... Whatever it is, it is true that those people have the responsibility to serve you nutritious spiritual fare. But if that's all you ever get, you're going to be drastically undernourished. Because, see, what really happens is that when we grow up, we may go out to eat, and somebody may put the food on the table in front of us, but we have to eat it. And more often than not, I really believe, as I've seen in my lifetime in various churches, 
When people say they are being fed, it is because they are sitting, looking at the banquet table and twiddling their thumbs, waiting for somebody to stick it in their mouth. More often, that is true than they're just not being offered anything which they could take into their lives and put to use. Feeding yourself, letting God discipline you, eating meat from the master's table. He has said it. It has been served by others, but each one of us must eat it. There is no real Christian growth that does not issue in the matter of discipline. There's no real growth apart from the processes of discipleship. What does that involve? It involves a number of things. It's not really complicated. It's very basic. There are fewer things that we need to do for ourselves spiritually to grow habitually than we have to do for ourselves just to keep ourselves going physically from one day to the next. You know, we get in a habit of doing things on a routine. We bathe or shower a certain time of the day, do our hair a certain number of times a week, uh, brush our teeth, eat, drink water, various things we just do. And some of these things become so routine that sometimes I've got to stop and, and think, now, did I do that? Well, I did, but I don't really remember because it's just habit. Well, what God wants to see happen is that we allow him to discipline us day by day until these things just become a part of our lives. Anybody have to tell you to breathe? Well, decide that your lungs want a vacation and just, you know, hold it from now until tomorrow and see what happens. And I firmly believe that a Christian can do without the processes of discipleship and be effective just as easily as you can stop breathing and live. And you know, often we look to situations at home. We look to interpersonal conflicts. We look outside ourselves over and over to try to find an explanation for why we're unhappy or ineffective or whatever when all that we usually need to do is to just examine our lives and see where we stand in our daily walk and our working relationship to God day by day. What is involved? A number of things, but just a few. The matter of prayer. Prayer is talking to God. You can talk to God freely. There's no vocabulary to be used. You don't have to talk in thee and thou. He never heard that kind of talk until about 1500 when the English language evolved. You don't have to talk to God any certain way. Just talk to God. You know, I've mentioned this to you before, and you know, through the years, it's proven to be very effective for a number of people. If you don't know how to pray or you don't feel like your praying is effective and you've got a real need to talk to God, just sit down and pretend like you're here and God's in Tulsa and write him a letter. Write him a letter like you were writing home or writing your best friend and tell him all about it. And when you finished it and put your name to it, you will have prayed, perhaps as effectively as you ever have. And then tear it up. It's only for your eyes and his. But however you do it, there needs to be the matter of prayer where we deal with our own needs, with the needs of others as we perceive them, with uh, interceding for other people, for the lost, for people in need, thanking God, asking God, 
adoring Him, praising Him, confessing our sins. Prayer is essential. The great Christian of the last century said, prayerlessness is the greatest sin, and I believe that. There's the matter of the Word, a right relationship to the Bible. How do you use the Bible? The hand of the Word that I illustrate with sometimes. Hear, read, study, memorize, and meditate. And you will be as effective spiritually as your hand of the Word is. You hear it if you go to church. You may or you may not read it, or you may combine reading and studying. They're two different things. They ought not to be combined. I believe that whatever a Christian does in relationship to the Word, whatever it is, that everybody ought to read the Bible systematically. With four chapters a day, starting Genesis, Psalms, and Matthew, read two chapters from the Genesis group, one from the Psalms group, one from the New Testament. In 260 days, you will finish the New Testament. You come back and add the second chapter every day to the Psalms group, and in less than one year, you will read completely through the Bible. And often we think we've really accomplished something if we do that. I remember the first time I read the Bible through. I thought how wonderful that was. But you know, the Lord began to nudge me a little bit and point out to me that have you ever taken a year to read any book other than the Bible? You say, well, it's a long book. Well, when I was a sophomore in high school, my teacher let me make three different book reports on the rise and fall of the Third Reich. You've ever seen that thing? It's monstrous. And I did that in six weeks. You ought to read the Bible systematically. And if I was a grown-up Christian and had never read every word of it, I wouldn't admit it. Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know, I talk, a lot of people to whom I talk have the same approach that I had for the first 15 years I was saved to the Bible. When I touched the Word at all, I just touched it at places I was familiar with and that I enjoyed. Do you realize what that's like? That attitude in any of us is like going to God and saying, Now, Lord, if you had just consulted me first, we could have edited this thing down and saved all that paper and ink. But it's all there for a reason, and every bit of it is important. So I believe that systematic Bible reading ought to be a part of everybody's Christian experience. This year uh, and every year that our church staff, it's a part of the program, some of you are aware of it, read the Bible systematically. We are not all reading the same thing because our exposure in the past and our habits in the past have not been exactly the same. But each man reads at a pace that he can handle and that he feels productive for him. And we will read through the Bible every year. When you get through with it, it is not something that you've assimilated. It is something, what do you do? You, well, you breathe easy for overnight and then you turn back and start over again. All right. Bible study. There are many effective ways to study the Bible. One very good way is to take a certain period of time, whether it's a month, two months, or three months. I would say no more than three months, depending on the book in the Bible 
and determine that during that period of time you're going to become an expert on that book of the Bible. You read through it a couple of times in a matter of a few days to read through it as straight through as much as you can to get an idea of how it all fits together. Then read a good introduction to it. This is a study Bible that I have with me tonight. Many of you use the Schofield. I have it. I have the new Schofield and the Thompson. This is the Ryrie Study Bible, a very good one. You can go to that and find the introduction to the book and the outline and just see the paragraph headings and the flow of the book and the matters he deals with. And then get a good, basic, simple commentary. One extremely good commentary series for this purpose is called Every Man's Bible Commentary, published by Moody Press. They are $1.95 a volume. They are written by very conservative, fundamental scholars that believe the Word. They're concise and yet very thorough and effective in dealing with the Word. Every Man's Bible Commentary by Moody Press. Those are good. There are a number of others. The Layman's Bible Commentary, the Tyndall uh, Bible Commentary on the New Testament. But whatever you use, then in the matter of a month, two months, or three months, you can study through that little commentary with the text, and at the end of that time, you'll be an expert on that book of the Bible. Now, if you could do one book a month, then that's a rather heavy pace. But if you could do one book a month, you could become really expert in handling the Scriptures in five and a half years. You say, five and a half years, that's a long time. Wow, it really is. But if you only do one a year, it takes 66 years. If you do four a year, it takes 16.8 years or, or something like that. So any task seems monumental until you just get a handle on it somewhere and start asking. It's like reading the Bible. It sounds like an impossible task to read through the Bible systematically. But you get a very basic and simple little system and take four chapters a day and you can do it every year. Take seven chapters a day and you can do it twice a year. Take ten and you can do it.